Welcome to episode 140 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Krivat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at krivatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Andy Klump, CEO and founder at Clean Energy Associates, with developer, IPP, and EPC customers in over 70 countries, over 155 gigawatts of solar PV, and over 15 gigawatts of energy storage projects, leading over 200 professionals operating in 15 countries, including over 135 engineers and inspectors. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, modernize the electric grid. The Climate Champions is also sponsored by the Gridwise Alliance, uniting grid modernization experts from across the electricity industry, the Gridwise Alliance promotes grid innovation for a decarbonized economy. To learn more, visit gridwise.org. Also, check out the videos on my new YouTube channel, The Climate Champions, with interviews with Jigger Shaw, Peter Kelly Detweiler, that's PKD, Chris Black, Rick Cornfield, 11-year-old podcast host of We the Children, Zach Fox Duval, and a bunch of one-minute climate update shorts. Being proactive towards society and entrepreneurial in nature, Andy also co-founded idefine.org in 2020 and kidsiqproject.org in 2015, a nonprofit organization advancing drug development for reversible intellectual disability disorders with an initial focus on Kleefstra syndrome. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat, and I'm here with Andy Klump, CEO and founder of Clean Energy Associates. And this podcast is coming to you from Bangkok. Andy, welcome to The Climate Champions. Lee, it's great to be here, and I want to say thanks for making the time. No problem. As a matter of fact, it's been a lot of time since we were first introduced by the true climate warrior, Nico Johnson. I looked it up. July 21st, 2022 is when he suggested we get together. And I know you've been super busy. I've been busy. So it's fantastic to have you on the show. Absolutely. I used to live in China for 19 years. And it was right around that time that I relocated my wife, my four daughters, our whole lives to Bangkok. And so life took some interesting turns since then. But we're all very happy here. And I'm very glad we could reconnect and, and make some time to talk today. Excellent. Excellent. So with regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment? I had a, a lot of moments in my uh, childhood that really uh, emphasized the, the importance of the outdoors. I was involved in Boy Scouts, eventually became an Eagle Scout. I just loved camping. You know, I grew up in St. Louis in a uh, kind of blue collar family. My dad was a taxi driver for 44 years. But what I really caught me on to the whole notion of climate change was when my, my mom, as a four or five year old, that you know we've always recycled and that she would help me uh, to recycle cans and I could help her and actually earn money from that. And I thought that was the neatest thing to say, wow, we can collect aluminum cans and we would do that when we were driving across the street, we'd stop the car, see a can on the side of the road, or we'd be walking in the park and find a aluminum can and 
I knew that if I collect enough aluminum cans, they could put them into a big giant plastic trash bag and take it to a recycling center. And I still remember the first time as a five or six year old or whatever age I was earning $2 and 36 cents. And to me, I was like, wow, we can do positive things for the climate and get paid for it. So I always grew up, you know, just loving the trees, loving nature. And the fact that there was this recycling program in St. Louis, that's what really got me excited about the fact that, wow, I can do something that is positive for the planet and can also help earn more money than I was making, uh, you know, drying dishes and doing chores around the house. I used to get a 25 cents allowance. So I really respect the multi-dollar figure you just mentioned. <laughs> yes. Yes. I was literally getting a nickel and a dime here and there, and it, it was in the range of 25 cents a week. So every penny counted. I had a big jar of all my coins uh, when I was a kid. So that's how I, I think I improved my math skills was by adding up nickels and dimes. So we're on the same page. Well, it looks like you've come all the way from age five to age whatever you are right now. You can say, I don't know. And you've kept that drive going. Can you talk about what drives you today? Yes. So I am at the age of, uh, ripe old age of 46. I feel very fortunate to have had the great foundation of my, uh, my parents who gave me a, a really strong foundation and understanding what's important about doing what is the right thing for the earth as well as for the family. But look, what I mean, what drives me today is the same thing that drove me to set up CA 15 years ago, and that is how can we create a sustainable planet? Uh, sustainability was always a core facet of our work. But once again, CEA's core purpose is that we believe that by helping our clients and stakeholders deploy solar and storage solutions worldwide, we can create a better future. And I firmly believe that each and every one of the CA team members, the 220 plus folks that we have in-house uh, working with our clients is entirely focused on that. And I have a monthly all hands meeting where I sit down with the team and we talk about how we're doing and give updates and we give rewards and recognition to the team. But I start with a, a session on our core values and I talk about our eight core values. We are family, have fun, and any curiosity, be humble, do the right thing, results matter, own it, and perform above and beyond. And we celebrate those folks who live those values on a day in, day out basis. And then we reflect on our core purpose. And with all the news we see today about extreme weather events and all these impacts on the climate, we need more folks in the CA team and globally in our industry focused on fighting climate change. So I feel very energized to keep growing and building. And I feel very passionate that the next several decades, as long as I'm on uh, God's green earth, I will continue to be a part of this, uh, this journey. So that's what excites me and continues to motivate me today. That's awesome. My daughter is a software engineer and she just left her job at an established company to work for a solar software company. So I'm really proud of her and she's pretty excited about that. But it sounds like based on the kind of leader you are, she should have come to work for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny, Lee, I actually just posted this on LinkedIn that we are looking for interns. And that one post, I've already had a bunch of folks respond. And I would love every single student, whether it's undergrad or MBA, to come and, and join us. We unfortunately have limited slots, but I love bringing folks on board. When I first started at, uh, in the solar industry was in 2006. I was actually working at Train of Solar, and I took the role having no clue at, at just anything about solar. And the fact that I was doing something positive for the planet, it was my first job where I was actually definitively in the uh, sustainability sector. And so I was thrilled. And I, I remember I was dating my wife at the time 
soon to be engaged at that point. And I said, I was nervous about my offer letter. And I said, look, as long as I make just enough to get by, I'm fine. And she thinks she kind of like scratched her head and is like, are we going to live in poverty here in China? Or what, you know, what's, what does it mean to get by? And I said, I don't know, but I'll, I'll take whatever they give me. And I just got so in, excited and enthused. And I had no budget to hire and build a team. But what I did was I hired some free interns. And then I was able to shore up a China salary. And it wasn't just China-Shanghai salary. It was China third-tier city in China where Changzhou was base salary. So I was able to recruit some top-notch folks from the U.S. to come over and be paid you know, $1,000 or $1,500 a month to work their tail off with me on helping to, to build out Trina, uh, take the company public. And we had a, a 10 or 12-person team. So I knew what it was like to, to bootstrap within a, a broader solar company. And so when I set up CA in 2008, I took that same mentality and said, I don't have a budget. I'm setting this up myself. And we bootstrapped and built and scaled the team, fortunately, to a sustainable level where we could pay a proper salary. But those first few years were really quite lean. And But we are all driven by that same passion, uh, which is how do we create a better future and how do we create an impact on the planet? I have found that the best times of my life were when I was on a team that had an impossible challenge ahead of us. And... We all rode in the same direction. We just had to. This is the only way to succeed. And we overcame those challenges together as a team. I'll never forget those days. I'm sure the people you brought on those early days will never forget that experience. Absolutely. You're, you're entirely right. And that core group, I still stay in touch with today. There are folks like Matt Miller, who is uh, now at Arc Financial, had a long tenure at uh, Recurrent Energy. Ivan Lafreniere went off to set up his own business and solar as a solar installer in the United States. There's a lot of folks who came to China for the China experience and then split off and did a lot of other things. But in this uh, post I was referencing, uh, I actually talked to three interns uh, who worked with us in 2013, 15, and 18. All three of those folks are doing fantastic things, set up their own platforms or working in sustainability in London and Sweden, it's super exciting to see bright talent come to this industry and to know that there was a small, small piece of that that they, they came to CEA. But look, our goal as we bring in folks in CEA is to keep hiring and building an amazing experience for them. Fortunately, we now have more resources and we've had multiple folks who come in at that junior level or that intern level and then expanded, grown, been promoted multiple times, switched departments, had a very enriching career at CEA. One of which has been with us for 10 years, Hatien. So it's really exciting to see young talent come to this industry. And we need to continue to bring in new talent. But we also need to bring in talent with, that has a lot of experience and skill sets from other sectors, including oil and gas, and bring those uh, energy professionals into the renewable energy industry because there's so much growth and so much potential. We just can't self-build the energy transition just by the resources we have now, we have to keep, continue to co-op and bring folks from other sectors along. There's a lot of wind at your back with regard to doing that, though, because like my daughter, so many young people want to do good. They want a job that makes their soul sing also. So I think they want a job doing what you have to offer. Absolutely. No, I completely agree with that. And I'll, I'll tell you a small anecdote. I had the good fortune to go to a great school like Northwestern when I was uh, in undergrad. I then went on to Harvard Business School. And one of my teachers, they stopped at the end of the, the traditional Socratic method. You know, there was a case study method, so they would never give a lecture except the last 15 minutes of the course, the teacher gave a lecture. And the one resonating uh, story, they said, beware 
of the trends and don't just follow the herd. The herd mentality is very strong at Harvard Business School and many other top MBA programs and just in life in general. And they said he charted all of his 30 years at Harvard, all the times where a certain percentage of graduates went into an industry or sector and it was right at that peak when the bubble burst. So that message stuck with me. And I knew that I was the only non-Chinese national that went to China. Uh, I was one of three folks out of a class of 800 that actually went and took a direct sales role. So I knew functionally and geographically I was doing something very different. But I also was looking at uh, making a transition from where I was working at Dell Computer purposely chose that role so I could get a foundation, learn the language, but more importantly, learn the culture. But then I said, I want to really find my industry and passion and really put all my energy in that direction. And so when I heard about solar, I said, great, here's the litmus test to see how many Harvard Business School grads were going to solar. So I said, I'm going to go to the alumni database, type in solar and the company name. And if there's more than one, 200, maybe 500 folks, the trend is against me. And so I said, I have no idea. It could be a thousand for all I know. So I typed in solar and out came uh, seven. And so I was like, <laughs> okay, okay, this is before the trend. Uh, this is 2006. It was after the SunTech IPO. So within China, solar was getting a lot of momentum, but it hadn't really spilled over globally yet. And I said, I absolutely want to go into this sector because it's the right thing to do. It's my personal passion. And I have no idea if the train is going to mount anything. They promised me I'd be a part of it, an IPO uh, deal team. And I said, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I said, look, if I can just get the experience in the sector, something's going to happen. This sector is going to grow. And uh, it turns out the Trina IPO did happen. I was part of that uh, listing on the New York Stock Exchange in late 2006. And then uh, if I look at the industry, it's literally from that 1.6 gigawatt install in 2006, the industry has grown 200x in the last 17 years. So I feel very fortunate that I was able to be a part of that growth trajectory. Well, I'm glad you did. I had Trina on my rooftop. So, and when I lived in San Diego, now I'm in Camas, we have a lot of renewables already. So I'm not sure what I'm gonna do here. Look, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you will see uh, solar on almost every rooftop globally at uh, in the next 50 years. So joining the trend sooner rather than later is better. But look, we've seen a massive transformation of the industry but still solar still has a long way to grow and other aspects of the renewable energy industry. And so we also have a, an energy storage practice, which uh, we started over a decade ago. It was 2011 when I first visited an energy storage facility, I became interested in the sector. We started getting clients calling us in 2014 and visiting factories in China and Korea. And then at that, after that trip in 2014, I said, we have to get a team in uh, George Tolupis is our head of technology uh, and quality. He founded that energy storage practice and we built and scaled the, the team from there. So in an aggregate, we've over, had over 15 gigawatt hours of energy storage engagements and over 160 gigawatts of solar projects on behalf of our clients that we've supported. So it's super exciting to see the growth and there could be other areas of renewables. We're doing a lot more work around green hydrogen, EV charging is starting and many other sectors are going to continue to grow. So I chose the name Clean Energy Associates rather than Solar Energy Associates because I had a vision for a wide you know, expansion of what we would do. But we really focused on solar and energy storage for a long, long time before we started getting into green hydrogen and some of these other areas. Yeah, my tagline for my company is clean energy and electric vehicles because to me, those two together, wow, 
amazing change. Now I've expanded a little bit. I talk to people about biomethane. I talk to people about a lot of other things that need to happen in agriculture, but my love is with clean energy and electric vehicles for sure. Absolutely. Look, there's a tremendous amount of growth potential. And so we're going to see the uh, all these sectors continue to grow and expand. But it's important that we view that uh, from the perspective of who are all the stakeholders in the energy transition. And it is uh, the, you know, the utilities play an important part. Oil and gas plays an important part. All the global corporates play an important part. Governments play a part. So I really do believe that uh, solar is one of the technologies that can be deployed on anywhere on the planet. At CEA, we actually track and monitor uh, all the projects that we've had uh, globally. We've actually completed projects or had client projects executed in over 73 countries. So we're on a path to get to, I think we're roughly at 30%, but we're on a path to get to 180 plus countries in the world. And we'd love to see that uh, happen in the next few years, but we know it's a it's a decade plus process. So. We're, uh, we're all working down that path. One of the things I say a lot, maybe too much, is all arrows in the quiver. And most of the time, I mean all technologies, but I also mean government, companies, people, towns, so different organizations all need to engage as well. But now you gave me a third way to expand it. All countries, all countries have to be in the game. Absolutely, there's no doubt. And that's why I, I do reflect on the reality that we face. And there, there are some folks who are climate change deniers or those who don't believe in the, in the sector. But the reality is you know, we have to put the task or the challenge at hand on the other side of the table and say, what are their biggest concerns and efforts? What can we do to help solve that? And so that's where I think solar absolutely in the United States is a bipartisan issue, whether you're Democrat, Republican, it doesn't matter. You can look at it from an energy security standpoint. You can look at it from a doing good for the planet standpoint. There are many different facets you have to be thinking about to solving the broader need for energy and think about the stakeholders that you're dealing with before you necessarily answer the question on why we should go ahead and do this and make that change. I used to use the hashtag red, white, and blue and green too. <laughs> and I, I meant the red, white, and blue because it's a thing for the country, right? It's patriotic to be independent with regards to energy, but then green, you know, for the environment, but also green for money, right? I mean, it's all in play. There's no reason not to go with clean energy. Completely agree. And I, I think that message has gotten out. And that's why you see so many folks embracing this. You know, I'd say really prior to, to 2020 at CA, we really did get involved in DC that much. You know, I was on the board of CEO when I was at Trina Solar. So understood how C operated, but I'd say particularly over the last several years, I've been making uh, regular trips to Washington, D.C., meeting with folks at National Security Council, DOE, CBP, DHS, the whole alphabet soup, because there's many folks that are paying attention to many different facets of the sector, not only due to the fact that there's various trade wars between you know, China and the U.S. and elsewhere, but also because there's a lot of concerns and attention around ESG and traceability. And so that part of the solution that CA brings to the table is traceability of supply chains. But the whole notion is that there needs to be a strong dialogue between the industry and uh, governments, not just in the US, but globally. And it's not that the industry needs crazy tariffs. The industry can survive on its own, but we need to make sure there's no one putting barriers in place of trade flows to make sure that the, the best products are getting to the places that we want them to. And so the overall job growth in the United States in this industry is not 
just on the manufacturing side, it's also an installation. And that's where I think we got caught up with some of that. But with the passage of the IRA, there's a massive build out of manufacturing. We're a part of that. We have a manufacturing services team that helps support different international folks that are coming to the U.S. or U.S. investors who want to invest in solar manufacturing facilities. So we see many of these plants actually going in the ground now, and it's exciting to see the, the growth and potential on all facets, but particularly this reshoring of U.S.-based solar and energy storage manufacturing is a great trend to watch and observe. You mentioned people that deny the climate's changing and don't think we need to do this. When you meet them, how do you convince them otherwise? That is a, a challenging question because I'm very, uh, very strong in my beliefs about climate change, but the reality is we're not going to be able to convince everyone. But what I always try to do is understand what are their beliefs grounded in and what is key to their stakeholders that they care about. And so quite often, we may not necessarily have the same alignment around climate change, but we can have the same alignment around the importance of job growth. So on the job growth side, solar is as a massive contributor to, to new expansion of clean energy jobs. And whether you're a Democrat or Republican, everyone cares about jobs. Everyone cares about economic development. And that's a point to mention. Or it could be something related to energy security. Some folks are concerned about being over-reliant on thermal or other sources of, of oil and gas and fluctuations related to that. So trying to address and tackle that issue and say, look, having more domestic sources of energy helps to alleviate that concern. So find those areas of common agreement as opposed to necessarily going to where they vehemently disagree. I think that's the, the right approach because the at the end of the day, we're not going to have everyone fully embrace climate change as a, as a core principle that maybe you or I believe. But what we can do is find alignment around those areas and try to avoid those naysayers from creating roadblocks. Because that's the one key issue that I think sidetracks our industry as we end up fighting you know, with various forces that don't want to see solar put in the ground. Let's try to find out what are the things that they care about and how can we create alignment around those. Agreed. Agreed very much. You've already talked a bit about what you do. Do you want to expand on that? I kind of jumped through some of my history and, and work experience in various episodes, but I should really back up past that session uh, where I was recycling with my mom and, and kind of backtrack a little bit to when I was 12. My mom you know, and dad came to me and they said, look, we put you in a small Catholic school for grade school and that was great, but we don't have much money and we can't afford high school. And so my first real job other than recycling cans was to find out how do I pay for high school? And so I took a, a simple business card like this one and just bought a poster board for 29 cents, measured out the business card and just cut up and made Handy Andy's lawn care services and put two smiley face stickers. And the next day I just went around my neighborhood and just passed it out and said, I'm willing to do anything and everything for, uh, for money. So if I can cut your grass or rake your leaves or do whatever odd chores, I'd be happy to do that. And I was uh, 0 for 20 on that first day. So I had 100% rejection. But it was through that that I gained some resilience. I kept passing out cards. I think my first client was my second grade teacher who actually had a yard that needed to be cut. And so I had just three customers that first year, but we kept doubling and growing the business until I scaled to 40 plus clients. I had a few guys working for me by the time I was in high school. Not only did I end up paying for all high school, I saved up a lot of money for college. And so I always had this uh, this entrepreneurial spirit. And when I, after graduating from Northwestern, I ended up working in IT for a few years in software in Austin, Texas, Chicago, and then Atlanta. But when I made my transition to business school, that's when I traveled to Southeast Asia, absolutely fell in love with Asia, never been. 
And I said, I've got to live in one place in Asia. And so I chose China. And so having spent the summer of 2002 in Shanghai, I then uh, finished business school in 03. And then I moved out full-time to Asia. I studied Chinese on the side when I was at the Harvard undergrad. I just took the class, not for grades, but just to learn. And I then did a, a, a six-week immersion program to go all in on the language. And I was so excited because everyone was telling me how great my Mandarin was. And I was excited. I thought, I asked my teacher, look, am I a, you know, a 12-year-old level? Am I a 13-year-old? And she's like, you speak like an eight-year-old. And I just remember being so deflated. I said, well, this eight-year-old has to sell computer equipment tomorrow because I'm starting a Dell computer. But that was my first day was really being right in the middle of a giant 900-person team going through training where I literally understood less than 10% of what was being said. But I had to just keep jotting down words and figure it out. After you know succeeding at Dell, getting promoted, leading a team, I then came down the path of understanding that there's this opportunity with Trina Solar, having met the CEO and founder, Mr. Jifan Gao. I took the role as kind of his right-hand man as vice president of business development. And as I mentioned, as part of the Trina IPO, I was on earnings calls. But I talk about that sequence in that reason, because what I learned at Dell stemmed out of my natural curiosity is that after every single sales call at a new place, I would go and say, hey, can I see your factory? I just want to see what the line is like and just walk around. And so I saw and understood different operating environments. And it was through that experience that I realized, wow, there's automotive, healthcare, all these other very mature industries. And then I went to see a solar facility. I was like, this is backwater. You know, this is just a small tree hugger industry with a lot of batch processes with no continuous flow, a lot of manual steps, no automation. And I said, wow, if solar becomes anything like those other industries, this has a massive way to grow. And so in those two years I was at Trainit, the company grew from 500 workers to 5,000, grew 10x on almost every other metric. And so it's phenomenal to be a part of that kind of growth path. And so I learned and saw a lot. But because I was in this highly visible role on the IPO and on earnings calls, when I left Trina, I had Dr. Shi from SunTech, Sean Chu from Canadian, and CEOs of all the top companies call me and say, hey, Andy, I want you to come and join our executive team come visit our factory, go see us. And I had no intention to join any one of those companies because I had a non-compete with Trina. So I had one year to, to observe that. But I said, wow, after three or six months, this is an incredible platform where I can really help international developers, independent power producers, IPPs, EPCs, financiers, really understand more about the China supply chain and really help them gain better insights into the quality of their product. So that was the foundation by which I set up CEA in 2008. I was doing supply chain and quality assurance work that I inherited this really strong network. So I was able to go in and try to get deals done. And, and folks who had problems, quite often it was literally just an issue of translation, but it was also a cultural mindset issue. And so I was able to be a cultural bridge between China and the rest of the world and really help more foreign companies understand how the Chinese thought operated, the challenges they faced, and really educating them. And so from that, CA grew and expanded. And here we are 15 years later with 220 folks and now part of the Intertech group of companies out of the UK. So very excited always for the future growth, but that's kind of my career in a nutshell. You became an expert at two things that were very important at the same time. And that was the ability to do business in China, which was very important, and the knowledge of solar. So you put that together and you were a very rare commodity and able to do a lot with that, right? Yes. It was a unique period in history because between 
mid-06 and mid-07, there were 10 Chinese solar IPOs. So it's just crazy just how ex exuberant the industry was. And it, look, it only lasted for a couple of years of where there were very frothy valuations and it was all predicated on the growth potential and also a lot of subsidies in Europe. So what happened in 2008 with the global financial crisis is that the valuations of all these companies dropped by 90%, including my Trina shares and everyone else's. And it was a rough time for the industry as we face an economic crisis. I literally set up CA right as that economic crisis was happening. So my timing was either the worst or the best, depending on how you look at it. I think it was the best because I had zero infrastructure. I had zero team members other than myself. I worked out of my, uh, my kitchen table, so I had no cost and I could weather the storm. Had I had had that crash happen year two or three when I already had a, an office and a team, then it would have been a massive shock. But I think a financial crisis is actually the best time to set up a company. So we grew. It took us a little longer to grow and scale, but that's exactly what, what happened. And you are right. I kind of took that advice that my teacher had given me back in business school and said, let me do something that's different and let me buck the trend by specializing in areas that were not sexy or not of mad broad-based appeal. I was highly differentiated. And once again, of those 10 China solar IPOs, there were only three foreigners that were actually on the IPO deal team. I was the only one that's uh, still in the industry today. It was the only one that was bilingual and really understood how to be that cultural bridge. And so that was the, the starting point for CEA. But since then, we've grown and expanded many other services. We have engineering services teams that are entirely independent of China or Asia. So we have teams in 15 countries around the world. But I, I learned the skill of entrepreneurship really from my dad and those early days of kind of roughing it out on a lower budget without much growing up. And so I think those are all uh, life lessons that have stayed along with me. It sounds like it was a rocket ship straight up. Can you talk about a setback or two that you've had in your career? Oh, geez, I had so many. There were a tremendous amount of setbacks and not all of them were professional. You know, a lot were personal as well. I'll talk about two or three, I'd say. One of the first setbacks was actually getting to China. My first trip was in December of 2001. I was interested in China, I did this six, seven day trip, which I extended, made it 10 days. And I, I was just networking like crazy, trying to talk to folks. And every Chinese person I met said, oh great, you gotta come to China. Yes, it's fantastic here. Look, all this growth, this is excitement. Please go right ahead. And then I met with one foreigner who was a partner at PwC and we literally had a 30 minute session. It was a friend of, a, of one of my classmates and he came and he said, why do you want to come to China? And he just abruptly stopped me after two minutes. And he said, wait, let me get this straight. You have zero background in China. You don't speak the language. This is your first visit here and you have no tangible skills to bring to the table. Why am I even talking to you? Just literally let's end the meeting now and go back home because there's nothing you're gonna be able to do in China. You're not gonna succeed here. And I said, oh, look, I understand that, but I'm very passionate about this. I'm gonna make it and I'm gonna do whatever. He's like, look, I don't have any other reason to talk to you. So I wish you the best of luck. And literally we ended our conversation after five or seven minutes and I left that meeting, closed the door, I felt so dejected, but I said, no, I'm gonna prove him wrong. And whenever someone puts a challenge out in front of me, I like to go back and say, all right, how am I gonna overcome this? And that was the same mentality that my mom and dad had said is just, look, we can't afford high school. You have to go to the public school or you have to find some way to pay for it. So I said, I'm going to find a way to pay for it. And so that resilience uh, is how we built up. That's just how I've kind of uh, approached things. On a personal level, my second daughter was born in 2012. 
she had a syndrome that we didn't know what was going on. We were traveling in the U.S. Six weeks later, after she was born in December of 2012, she had to be rushed to the hospital and ended up going to the NICU for two weeks. And turns out they didn't know what was the problem with her, but she had to have surgery because she was having trouble breathing and swallowing. And so she was in surgery at the age of six weeks, had to be intubated. We then had to stay in the hospital for two months to teach her how to swallow again, because she had this artificial breathing that was helping her for, for several days. We just totally had to totally change, uh, change our life. Uh, we partially relocated back to, uh, to Dallas to help with her care for those six months. But once we got her stabilized, we moved back to China. But we later found out she had Clayster syndrome, and it prompted us to say, look, we just don't want to help her. We want to help all kids with this. Turns out there are only 300 cases. It was an ultra-orphan syndrome. We set up a charity called Kids IQ Project. We later set up another charity in the U.S., which was a 501c3 called idefine.org. And we put a lot of our time and resources towards fundraising and raising awareness. There now are over 1,000 folks who have this syndrome, and we're banding together to really try to raise awareness and raise enough money to get drug companies to fund a drug discovery program. So after $2 million of fundraising, you know, we've made a lot of progress, but we also put a lot of time in, into our daughter, Natalia. She's gone through extensive therapy six, seven days a week from the time she was a very small child. Uh, and now she's in a special needs program here in, um, in Bangkok. But whatever personal professional challenge you face, you just have to say, say look, I, I, there's some things I can't control. What I can control is how I react to that. And so each of those cases kind of demonstrates some of the resilience I've taken as uh, I approach different challenges in life. And that's one of the stories I always talk to my team about. I definitely want to get the message out. You can control a lot between what's, uh, you know, what's up here. There's some things we can't control, but let's focus on what we can control and put as much positive energy towards that and you can have an impact. And that's why I think to tie it back to your listeners, I do believe that we can fight climate change. I do see the, the realities of extreme weather events and a lot of other harmful effects on our planet. But I do believe a change is there. And we're going to continue to approach this with as much positive energy and technology and other aspects. If enough folks do that, we will be able to fight off 1.5 C and create a better future for our planet. So are people going to do it? Absolutely. Look, I, you just commented on your daughter. And I see my my daughter, uh, who's 12, oldest daughter is 12 years old now. And she just completed Model UN and talked about climate change. And look, the prevalence in this next generation of folks, I think, is going to be overwhelming. I think a lot of us who are in our you know, 40s and 50s and been entrenched in a lot of old school thinking, they're going to be really amazed at this next generation of talent. And I, I feel it. And I see the, the amount of new talent. Just in turn, CVs, which I still encourage folks to send, it's super inspiring to see what research and projects have been done. But look, with all the new technologies that are available today and the innovation that's happening, I, I really do believe that we're going to be able to avoid 1.5. And there are a lot of entrenched forces that are fighting against us, but there's enough positive effort and momentum that we are going to make a meaningful change. So that's why I applaud you and your listeners for being a part of that change and really helping to drive the uh, industry forward. I hope it's okay if I ask. I kind of skipped over this, but how is Natalia doing? Oh, thank you for asking. She's doing really well. She still has her intellectual disability. Her IQ is in the lower 2% of the population. So there's no cure for her condition. But there are cases and advances of gene therapy that we're still hopeful that there may be a future treatment that's out there. But she's able to function well in school. She cannot do basic math, but uh, she's reading books that are 
largely aligned with her level. A lot of the physical challenges that she has are still with her. She's wearing a brace at night because she has an underdeveloped uh, upper jaw. So she is, we're trying to pull that jaw out over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. She will have to have more surgeries, but we are very hopeful for her ongoing success. And uh, eventually we'll relocate back to the U.S. and, and get her in a school and a program that will allow her to find her path. I, I really applaud her resilience and she's taught me a lot. So um, she's made me a better person through, uh, through her challenges. Well, I, I, I wish her and you and your family all the happiness there is. Thank you very much. And I, truth be told, I have to give all, the bulk of the credit to my wife, Lindsay, because she was the one just slave driving uh, all the therapies, making numerous trips to hospitals. And I participated as much as I could. This has been a life's work. Uh, and so I know she's very proud of Natalia as well as our other daughters as well. So um, they've all learned a great deal through, uh, through Natalia's struggles. Yeah, yeah, wow. And you've talked about a number of successes. Which success are you most proud of? Boy, I, I really have to look uh, holistically and say, I, it's a two-part success, but they're both connected to my team. So first of all, I love my team. Uh, the, the team at CA is great. And they've stuck through with me through thick and thin. We've had rough years and we've had great years. But uh, we've really built uh, an amazing organization of eight players, and everyone there is uh, is really, I can't say 100%, but we're highly, highly engaged. And if you look at any of the research, I know Gallup put out some uh, surveys on this, it is crazy. It's like 71% of the global workforce is either fully disengaged or just disengaged from their work. And it's crazy to think about. Once again, we don't use the E word at CEA. We refer to our team as team members. We don't refer to managers or bosses. We talk to them as leaders. We really try to reframe the culture that we have at CA is participatory at every level. And a number of folks really embrace that. And so to me, I, my biggest success and what I'm most proud of is really seeing the success of the team. But I have to say the second part of this is the cultural transformation of the company because I didn't know that I was my own worst enemy. And we had a lot of success I'd say in the 2012 to 2015 era, and we grew from roughly five to 10 folks the early stage up to 50 very, very quickly on the back of some great deals and great customer relationships and just a natural all-in effort. But we didn't clearly define our values. The values I articulated starting with We Are Family were not well articulated prior to 2015. We didn't have a clear core purpose or a vision, but we put a lot of that in place in this 2015 time era. And then we started to measure with the team member net promoter score, what's also called ENPS, we measured the satisfaction of our team. And the reality was those early days in 2016, 2017, a lot of people were unhappy because we were working so hard and they did not have work-life balance. They did not feel appreciated. I did not learn the to give recognition the way we do right now. And so we had really had to change the, it was a culture transformation of the company. And I did that with the help of an executive coach who helped me understand my weaknesses. And once again, I didn't ever had any formal training. My dad was a cab driver. So he always taught me, if you have something good, keep it to yourself and keep it a secret. And I, I just said, okay, I didn't, I didn't understand. Like when in business, you want to celebrate success. You want to share with everyone else what's going on and what's great in the company, as opposed to just keeping your heads down and keep working. So I was my own worst enemy, but I learned my mistakes. I started reading a lot of books. I joined Entrepreneurs Organization, later uh, YPO, Young Presidents Organization. So I learned from other leaders that were successful. And through those experiences, 
we made this massive cultural transformation. So this last year, we had a TMNPS of 46. I was so proud when we had that full engagement of the team. So we continue to measure and look for ways that we can engage our team fully. And that's where I'm really excited, like at the executive level, the leadership level, through many facets of the CA organization, we're there. And so that engaged team is what allows us to succeed. So that's what I'm most proud of. What I'm really excited about what you said, and it was all great, is you talked both about work-life balance, but also about rewarding people and complimenting them and letting them know they did a great job. And I think a lot of people think that rewarding people is a way to keep them from having work-life balance, to keep them working more. But I don't believe that at all. I think that these are different concepts and you want to give your employees to build a great team and a great company, all of it. Absolutely. Look, I would love to say, hey, everyone embrace a four-day work week or nine to five. We don't have any hard rules around when people work, when they don't. And everyone else is, is self-motivated and self-driven. So we have flexibility around when our team does their work. And a lot of folks in today's world, and definitely during COVID, were working remotely, so they had to. But look, we obviously want to have folks who are happy and engaged, and you can only do that when you have a certain amount of balance. And I am fully supportive of folks to embrace that principle. And I push it pretty hard, as is my team, but they also, you know, they take breaks. And we do a lot of things to try to celebrate success uh, to the point, awards and recognition. One of the things that I'm really big on that we're, we're pushing right now is like, have you acknowledged the success of your team on a small way every seven days? Just once again, we have a Good News Friday announcement we put out at the company, you know, once a week. And I love it because it's it, you have different ideas and stories bubble up and we just share those out to the team. But we're looking at more ways to do on a micro level. How do you give the platform, the mic to everyone who's at that working level and say, hey, what are the great things that you see done by your coworkers? So there's a, a new program we're looking to roll out around that. So I can't talk about it just yet, but I'm super excited. We're also publishing our culture book for the third year in a row. One of the insights I had back in 2014 was reading the book, Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea. And actually I went to Las Vegas and saw the Zappos organization, saw the zany designs of all the desktops of different folks and how everyone embraced the culture. And I said, wow. And they gave me a culture book. And I said, I want to build that out. And it wasn't until 2020, we had our first version. We just did internal. But in 21, we did the first one that we put on our website. And it's a phenomenal tool. And our 22 culture book is just coming out this next week. So we're also going to put that on our website. I'll also intend to publish this on LinkedIn. And I, I want to encourage everyone to look through that. Last year's version, two years ago, was 50 pages. Then it was 80 pages last year. This is 120 pages. And it's full of content and stories and awards, recognition. And this is how we celebrate our culture. So I would love for every company in the sector to embrace that same excitement and positive energy. Because you have to award and recognize all the great work that's happening in our entire industry. But the reality is not everyone does that, but that's okay. Uh, that's one of the things that makes CEA great. But I want to take that message and I'm happy to share with my competition. I'm happy to share it with all our partners and customers and suppliers because all the work that they're doing is equally important in driving towards our energy transition. So I'm, I'm very excited by that. I am too. I'm very thankful that for myself, my first job out of school was Tandem Computers. And they had a great culture. They really had one of the first companies that had a Silicon Valley culture. And they had the idea of work balance. They also had the idea of rewarding. 
not to the extent that you have it. It wasn't 120 pages, <laughs> but they really set me up, I think, for success because they gave me a perspective of how a company could be. And I never forgot it, no matter where I went, even when I went to companies that were more stodgy, I tried to make my teams and my organizations feel appreciated and be rewarded and have work-life balance. Hopefully I did a good job. Absolutely. That's extremely important. And I've seen that with a lot of, of great leaders within large organizations. Sometimes the organizational culture may not be that positive or aligned with those principles, but individual teams are very dynamic. And look, the, the fact is people don't leave companies, they leave leaders or managers in, in, in some cases. And so if you have a leader which creates a positive experience for their team, that's fantastic. And what we really strive at CA is to create this culture of positive reinforcement and rewards and recognition, but it's up to each individual team leader. So on a quarterly basis, I get together with my team of leaders and I talk to them about things I've learned. And I we brainstorm and talk about how can we do things better? And uh, we call this the Leadership Development Group. We have a lot of acronyms at CA, so this is the LDG group. We actually just met yesterday and we had a lot of great participation. And I tell my executives, be quiet, let the team speak and come up with different ideas. So everyone who's a people leader, there's 50 plus of us in the organization were, was on this call, but we also invite our winning culture team. We have a separate team that on top of their core job, they get together once a month and talk about what are other ideas to create and build our, on our great culture. And so you want that participatory involvement of every team member and get folks really engaged because that's at the micro level, there's a lot of freedom and flexibility to do that. And that's what we wanna make sure to, to bring that message to many others. Absolutely. You already talked about your vision for the planet is that we're gonna make it, but we're already seeing weather events. So when you look ahead 25 years, let's say, what do you think the earth is gonna be like? How are we doing? Absolutely, look, I, I fully acknowledge there's already harmful effects on the planet due to the existing climate change we have. And it's impossible to say you can just, you know, snap your fingers and the, the trajectory changes overnight. But there will continue to be these events and it's going to drive more and more awareness. This happens in many places in the planet. One of the other reasons I'm passionate about climate change is because I've traveled in many other places often that are directly impacted. Now I'm living in a country that prides itself on its tourism. But I see as I've traveled in different beaches in, in Thailand, I see the proliferation of plastic and, and trash you know, in the sea. One of our team members, Casey Marshall, he's one of our executives that also sits on the, the board of a nonprofit called Five Gyres. They're really fighting the proliferation of plastic in the ocean. And so I see firsthand where that has happened. So I fully acknowledge the trend is not in the right direction today. But looking out 25 years, will it get worse? Yes, it will get worse. And I can't really point to the year or the time frame that we're going to see massive change, but I think the awareness is getting there. We're now pushing towards greater deployment of renewables. It's not going to completely eliminate all coal plants, but look, you see the downward trajectory of coal plants in the United States and in, in other places. And the fact is, you know, energy is a key part of the solution, but it's not the only one. One of the things I really try to highlight with my team you know, I have my, uh, my CA water bottle, which I take with me everywhere. We've given to everyone in the company is just eliminating single-use plastic as much as possible. It's hard to eliminate it, but just saying no. And a lot of it's just about just refusing to consume. It's great to have recycled aluminum, but 
just you don't have to take that drink if you bring your water bottle you've got your own so you don't have to buy that can of sparkling water or you can use a a recarbonated filter at home so the reality is 25 years out yes i see some more storms on the horizon there's a lot of challenges for us to address but we need to continue to push for the positive solution and once again we all start to account that technology is going to get better there will be other items and solutions that are out there I'm not a vegetarian myself, but I eat a lot more Beyond Meat uh, burgers than I've uh, had before. And five years ago, that wasn't an option. So there's going to be a variety of, of ag tech solutions that are going to feed the world the protein they need, but it's not going to be the same form as we've had in the past. So we just have to know that every facet of the challenge we're facing on climate, there are a number of folks that are committed to, to making these changes. So that's why I'm still very optimistic that despite these ongoing challenges, we will see positive progress across all these different dimensions. What impact do you think the pandemic had in the fight against climate change? Well, it definitely created an awareness of what happens when all of a sudden you don't need to travel. You can use tools like Zoom to do calls like this. Uh, you and I haven't met, but I feel like we're already connected very deeply, Lee. So we're absolutely going to stay in touch. I use the, the platforms to communicate much more. My travel is down substantially compared to where it was three or four years ago, I've spent a lot more time with my kids during the pandemic. And so I think one of the awareness is just on business travel and, and efficiencies and how we do our work. I think that's extremely important, but it's also you know, clear, we saw the, the downtick on CO2 emissions and methane emissions and a lot of other things, but then they've, they've kind of jumped back. And so I wanna make sure this just isn't a blip on the radar screen. I think there was a legitimate awareness of like, wow, we can alter our patterns. And I think like just human behavior needs to fundamentally change. And while we're facing, a, you know, once again, a geopolitical challenges right now in Europe, and we haven't seen a war in Europe for 80 years, and now we're sitting on one, clearly geopolitical stability is a, is a key issue that faces the, the planet right now. But we need to move away from those type of conflicts and focus on what we do agree, which is really trying to live in harmony with nature and try to still continue to drive economic progress and development but do it in such a way that it's not as harmful for the planet. What advice can you give my listeners about how they can help mitigate climate change? Well, once again, the big thing I, I push, just the like the example I gave you, obviously recycling is, uh, is key. I've always been a lifelong recycler, but also focus on on really trying to, how, how can we reduce, not just reuse, but what needs to be consumed. And also I'd say really teaching and education. And I, I spend a lot of time with my children and really try to educate them on some of these basic principles, because then they can then bring that idea and concept in their schools. And I learned things from their school programs. So one of the things I, I really say is like, do you need to consume that XYZ beverage or other you know, consumer good? Let's learn to you know, get by with less. That would be the ideal scenario. I mean, if you look at energy efficiency, just literally small things like turning off lights when you don't need them, why worry about that next incremental watt that you have to create? Let's find out how can we you know, be efficient in terms of the current uh, use of electricity that we do have. So I'd say those are some of the directions that would love to give the message to your listeners and to really rethink what is it that you really need and what is the impact on the planet. It's really about thinking about others, not just about yourself and what your needs are. So I think it's just a broad-based theme that could be uh, given to anyone. Do you have any questions for me? Oh, I have a ton of questions for you. I guess I, <laughs> I the, one thing, the one thing I'd hone in on that I would love to, to get uh, and I know you're going to go into your wrap in a second, so I, I look forward to that. But how else can we bring talent into the industry? I, I'd say of all the podcasts I've been on, you have the most innovative end to a podcast. So I, I can't wait for this. 
But I want to know how else can we bring the message, this message of what you do to your podcast to a broader audience and really educate the next you know, generation of leaders. I'm curious to know what your ideas are, bringing that, that message to a wider audience. Well, I'm trying to leverage some amount of communication skills that I have that you're now making me blush about, but I'm, I'm trying to leverage it. I thought I could get the podcast out to thousands and thousands of people every time I released one. And sometimes I do pretty good and sometimes not as well. But that is one thing that I'm trying to do. But with the rest of my time, because the podcast isn't the main thing I do, I'm advising a lot of companies, both from advisory board positions, from board positions. I never say no, which is kind of a crazy thing, but I just say yes. Anything that I can do to help this fight, I'm going to do. I was recently asked to speak at a school event and yes, yes, I'm there. I will write a new pitch to address what they want me to address because we've got to. All arrows in the quiver. And we're only going to get all arrows, and in this case, people in the quiver, if we all that understand it, as you said, educate others, get the word out any way that we can. Well, one thing I will do is I will absolutely uh, blast this uh, podcast out to uh, my LinkedIn feed and certainly encourage anyone who uh, follows CA to listen to this and promote your message because I think everyone should be listening to it. But I would also say I'd love to see if I can help you find other uh, heavyweights to join the podcast. Obviously, you've had Jigger Shaw, Andrew Beebe, a lot of other innovators. But I think you, once again, continue to reach out to many others across different sectors, I think is extremely important. So I'm very excited about the work you do and I ask you to keep it up. So I'm very happy we had this discussion and want to make sure we uh, continue to move ahead. So we'll stay in touch, Lee. Yeah, I'm excited about the work that you do. And is there anything else you want to say before we end it? Yes, I mean, once again, I think that one of the core themes that we deal with on a day in day out basis at CA is that, you know, we do help solve a lot of problems related to supply chain, quality engineering. And, you know, once again, I just want to highlight to many folks who have uh, seen and been in the industry for a while, um, you know, there is a, a very real crunch uh, on the supply chain. There's a lot of challenges that are happening due to uh, trade issues, doing, due to policy and regulatory concerns. And we do, um, as I said, talk about this onshoring of U.S. solar capacity and a lot of other trends happening. There's a big push into Canada, a big push into Europe for domestic-based manufacturing. Please do reach out to myself or the CA team if there are ways that we can help you. We want to help you deploy more solar and energy storage. There is a truckload of opportunity ahead of us, and uh, that's part of the work we do. So I'm going to make sure that message gets out to all your listeners, and we're here to, to, to help however we can. And on that great note, I'm going to wrap this up. And you really put the pressure on me with <laughs> a wrap. You collect and recycle cans. The money made you want to shout. You're only five, six years old, just a boy, then Eagle Scout. You wanted a better future, and that's why you began it. You put your effort into making a sustainable planet. When it comes to solar jobs, it's something we're trying to address. That's why we're bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. You were doing it to pay for high school, not just for candy, but you were 0 for 20 when you were handy Andy. Every solar company out there, their CEO, they reached out to you, but you had a non-compete, so you could not go. When it comes to environmental change, you're never going to be sated because your professor's advice was to be highly differentiated. You're very thankful to Lindsay, that's your wife, 
for ensuring that Natalia has a great life, working, getting rewarded, being part of a team. It can be an awesome dance. It's just really important to have work-life balance. I thank you for your offer to give my podcast a bump. And I also thank you for getting solar over the hump. This conversation has been a joy. It makes me want to jump. Thank you so much, Andy Klump. <laughs> Lee, you never cease to amaze me. I, uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of your podcast, and I, uh, I, I reward you. You, you had me worried there that I was going to stump you a bit, but uh, uh, you've, you've, uh, you ended up on a strong note with uh, three, uh, three rhymes with my last name. I had a lot of that growing up, so uh, I, big salute to you and. Big salute to all your listeners who are engaged and uh, hearing the message that you sent. So keep up the great work. How exciting to interview someone in the renewable energy industry so studied on leadership as Andy. If my podcast fails, it would be my honor to work for him. Send in your resumes. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. And check out my new YouTube channel. Just search for The Climate Champions and Lee Crevat. A number of times, Andy talked about how his struggles have shaped his values. I identify with that very much, coming from a lower middle-class home in Brooklyn. It took me many years to shake the intense focus on making money and turn my attention to how I could do good. Whether your focus is making money, hey, there are a ton of high-paying clean tech jobs out there, or on helping to save the world, or doing both at the same time, please join the fight to help mitigate climate change.